This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Natasha John's Messenger joins us in the studio now. Her current exhibition, Sightlines, Natasha John Messenger, on until the 25th of September at Heidi Museum of Modern Art in Boleyn, which is a remarkable place in many ways. And uh, uh, I understand you made this work on site, so it's in some ways a response to Heidi um, as much as an exploration of your concerns and, and interests. Yeah, I mean, I'm a site artist, so what I do is I often go to a site and create a new work specifically for that space, and that could mean a built environment, like specifically built in that in in that um, in situ, or it could mean collecting material from that site, like photographically or you know filmically or in any other way. But essentially, um, you know, a site artist gets inspiration from the site and uses the site as subject matter and then on top of that you know I like to also use the participant viewer as the subject matter of the work so yeah. it's you're creating work in which the the viewer's perceptions become part of the work itself in many ways yeah I mean to another viewer the other, another viewer is a part of the work in that they're kind of in in space they're not they're not quite when you're not quite sure of what's real and what's not inside an environment then the other person who you're looking at the work with becomes part of the subject because a you don't know if they're you know if that's them or if that's a reflection of them because the way I've done it I've set up um, yeah I'm interested in perception but it's it's more about that little space between what your perception um, what your body thinks and what your mind thinks there's a little gap I've discovered a little gap there <laughs> and I like to play with that gap and the um, the gap is um, oh my body says this is real my mind says no that can't be real and when that happens you kind of activate a little higher alert in your in your being and hopefully a little bit more awareness and you have to be physically more aware because it can be dangerous to bang into a mirror so in some ways you're pushing people to be extrasensory not in the in the in the 70s ESP style mm. but to be conscious of their senses and to push their senses out into an area that we don't necessarily consciously think of and work in. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because I think that there's a lot that we take for granted just about how we operate in the world. And when you just sort of disrupt that space a little bit, then you are um, opening up, uh, you know, somebody's um, ability to kind of maybe to see more more clearly just for a a split second or, uh, you know, each person's, you know, understanding and each person's reaction is always different. And I don't want to dictate anybody's experience or... All I want to do is set up a mechanism for them to have their own experience. So what kind of mechanisms are you setting up in this exhibition out at Heidi? I'm imagining, imagining that mirrored surfaces for, surfaces, for example, play a part in, uh, because of the way that when there are multiple mirrors in a space, the different reflections and refractions and, and can, you can change not only people's perceptions of a space, but really change the feel of a space, make it smaller, larger. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, using kind of pretty simple optical physics, it's not a, it's not, not like a high-tech show. I mean, all the materials in the show, you could have used them 200 years ago in an exhibition in a way. They're very low-tech. But what I like to do is set up the mirrors so that instead of um, it acting like a reflection, it acts like an extension of space. And the way that I do that is that I use the um, environment built around the mirror, the structure built around the mirror itself, as, um, as the way to um, create the illusion that the space is extending and yeah I can I can make a space feel bigger or for it to 
feel smaller as well and the, that's the way I fold it back on itself or expand it. And that notion of the microscopic is something that I know is part of this exhibition as well which I haven't had the chance to see yet but I'm every, even uh, before we began talking I was going yep yeah, that's on my list to try and get to but I'm now even more intrigued mm-hmm. because you've responded not only to the site but to the landscape of Heidi to the colour of the landscape to some really fine details that may people may not be again consciously aware of but you're revoking through the work nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, part of, I think, opening up awareness is taking a closer look literally, and so I actually use a kind of a macro lens to go into Heidi, and I went back and visited many, many times to kind of create a set of um, uh, photographs for the first time in a while, Um, and what I um, wanted to do was open up those layers by taking a closer look, and I I found that um, Heidi has a palette, and it's not just the landscape of Heidi, but it's also the built environment of Heidi. It has a kind of a palette that came through and there's so many um, aspects um, of a site that um, my, my job as a site artist, I see my job anyway, I'll create my own job in a way, like on like on LinkedIn when you create your own job, I say, oh, I'm a site artist and I'm going to go in and I'm going to just look at a new layer every time I go back and try to find it almost like a, an excavation of, uh, of viewing. Way. What are, are the what colours are in the palette of Heidi? What are the tones? The tones are quite muted, um, actually, and there's a few. There's obviously green and grey, and um, there's also kind of a deep, kind of a deepy grey purple, and there's uh, of course the sky blue. There's the blue. There's um, uh, you know, there obviously there's a design to the palette. One at a certain point, you can you know find any colour palette anywhere, but. But the actual buildings and the and the sky and the um and the materials of the space, including the grey floor, all become a part of that. So that you know, any you can put it this way: being a side artist for a long time, I know that I can pull any palette out of any anywhere really. But I kind of this particular one, the more dominant palette is those muted colours. Now those colours will change depending on the light, the quality of the light, the brightness of the light, the perspective and angle that the light is coming from. Yep. How important is light itself to you and your practice and to this current exhibition? Well, it's it's very important in some ways because I was um, because there's a central window inside Heidi, the one where you go down the stairs and look straight ahead and there's a window and I've used that in the main kind of um, installation called Echo which is a which is a large um, uh, you know perceptual perceptually shifting hallway that you head to this window but it's not um, the real window it's the window via a whole lot of uh, trajectories of this extended space mirror mechanism that I use quite a lot in my work Um, and as the light changes in that window the work changes in the window. It's only using natural light coming into that. And um, I was thinking a lot about, you know, how that works in relation to, um, you know, shifting light. And I started thinking about, um, not to take it too far back, but, you know, the Impressionists were interested in light and colour. And I do come from painting. And this is an extension of how, how to um, how, how to see and that, that it's about um, pictorial space in a lot of ways. And so the moving light is very important, but it's just the moving light that is... So if the light is grey, it's grey. If it's sunny, it's sunny. If it's this, it's that. So it's more bringing you to to um, have a relationship with the light on an immediate level. Now, by mimicking architecture at times and by using mirrors and, and encouraging and forcing viewers to can look directly uh, at an down an unusual angle, for example, kind of to what degree are you hoping to not disorient viewers, but to to break their their usual 
way of thinking and looking at the world? Um, well, I, I only want to break it. I don't, I don't want the work to be about trickery or be about, oh, how did she do that? Or because it's then they, they start to think about how you how did, you did it, yeah. not what they're saying. It's just break it enough, break the, break the um, space up enough so that they're not quite sure. So that they're just looking at, so there's one particular piece called Sky Tree where you look down this kind of, um, this, I called it a tunnel, this um, basically a, a circular view of a sky and a tree outside the window, which is actually just the window that exists in that room inside Heidi. But I wanted to um, let you just have a look at the, the tree and the sky. And if I can just make it so that you're just staring at the, the, the sky and the tree, you know, for a little bit longer than normal, but you don't know how you're looking at it, that, but that's all you can look at while you're wondering how you're looking at that. So that's all I want to do, just induce that that image to kind of resonate on a different level of consciousness, just a tiny different level. I mean, I don't mean to sort of, I don't want to bring it into any kind of new agey kind of rhetoric in any way, but just a little level of, oh, it's just the sky and tree. And I'm intrigued by that work uh, because you need, you're you're encouraging the, the viewer to look down at something they would normally be looking up at. Yep. That, that, I guess that's the point where they say, how is that possible? That's, that's the little part where they say, how is that possible? And because it's kind of, again, it's, it's the way that it's kind of housed inside that. Um, it's not the mirror itself. Any, anyone can look at a mirror in the bathroom and kind of look at themselves, but when you can't see yourself in a mirror, it ceases to become a mirror in your conscious mind, I think. So when, when they're looking down and through, um, you know, there was always that, um, you know, let's, let's try and dig a hole and, you know, get to China, you know. I mean, as a kid, I was yeah. very interested in all those kind of <laughs> concepts. To, to step back from the current exhibition, you mentioned that you've come from painting in your background and you've ended up as, as a sight artist. How did that journey happen? Because... It, it seems on one level a logical progression. You start with paint on a canvas or paint on a board or paint on paper and you slowly move away from representing images to making objects and images. But talk to us about the journey that took you from painting to this, this current exhibition at home. Yeah, it's interesting because people talk about, you know, the illusions in my work, but when, when you go back to actually understanding how to draw a picture, you're trying to create an illusion. You, the illusion is you're taking a three-dimensional view and you're putting it onto a two-dimensional surface, and the illusion is that it's three-dimensional in some way, or that it has distance and it has proportion and it has a, a relationship. Perspective and yeah, and it yeah. has re- a relationship to the three-dimensional. Um, and so that's kind of a literal kind of um, connection is that, you know, an illusion comes from that. But if I had studied sculpture, for example, I wouldn't be, I don't think, making works that are are, um, essentially dealing with pictorial space. They're dealing with a view. So a photograph um, is kind of a snapshot. And when I extend a mirror in a certain way, it also becomes a snapshot or an immediate um, photograph. I call it like a real-time image capture. So, and, and through painting, I mean, it's a very interesting journey like um, in a lot of ways what I'm dealing with is a very traditional idea of art because I'm, I'm taking the literal interpretation of space and then trying to move it along through even from you know from Jackson Pollock's you know creating a splat and saying that that is the work now we're taking it from a representation to the paint being the thing itself then to the wall and then from the wall to space itself that's kind of the, the very, very simplified journey. Okay. Sightlines, Natasha John's Messenger, is on now at Heidi Museum of Modern Art in Berlin. It's curated by Linda Michael, who's the deputy director at Heidi. Talk to us about the process, the, the, the curatorial approach, and 
how that relationship has then influenced uh, the resulting exhibition? Yeah, I mean, the initial invitation came like quite quite a while ago now, two, almost two years ago in May 2014 to do the show. And it's an interesting conversation that happens with the curator because essentially um, there was there was a... Um, from the beginning, I don't know, I'm pretty sure it was Linda's first suggestion that the main installation happened in the central gallery towards that window and a kind of one of my classic corridor works pointed to that that space and then the rest of the exhibition started growing and it's an interesting um, dialogue about um, all the different ideas that are coming to the table and of course there are many many drafts you know and it makes it look like a scene you want to make it feel like when you come to see the show this is the only show that you ever would have chosen you know but of course there are hundreds of drafts to get it to that you know, point, and so it's just really nice having um, you know somebody there to have a conversation with, and then and then to talk about placement, to talk about in, you know the inclusion or or not of certain works, and uh, and the concepts behind the works, and how it all comes together as a whole, the whole show, how it all comes together in the end. And is this the first time you've made work in response to Heidi? This is the first time, yeah, that I've made work in response to Heidi, and I, I like to see it like um, you know I practice in different sites, but then I bring those mechanisms and that practice to some another site. So I can bring it the same um, modality to another space. So, yes, I've never done a work specifically for Heidi. <laughs> Sightlines, Natasha John's Messenger, on until the 25th of September uh, at Heidi 3 at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art, 7 Templestowe Road, Bulleen. Uh, open Tuesdays to Sunday and public holidays from 10am to 5pm. And more details at www.heidi.com.au. Natasha, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. Cheers. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Now, lots of art forms tend to only collaborate with artists who share a, a similar practice, a similar, similar methodology or focus. So a visual artist with another visual artist, um, uh, an actor with another actor. But occasionally you get these fascinating hybrid works where, say, I don't know, an opera company decides to collaborate with a circus company to see what happens. Um, a new work that is doing exactly that, presented by Victorian Opera, in uh, partnership with Circus Oz. It's called Laughter and Tears and is happening at the Palais Theatre um, coming up on the 13th, the 16th and the 18th of August. And joining us to tell us more, Victorian Opera's executive producer, Libby Hill. Libby, good morning. Good morning, Richard. How are you? I'm really well, really well indeed. Now, I've got to ask just how, whose idea was this to go opera, circus, yep, let's fuse them together, surely it will work. Who came up with that? Um, well, Richard Mills, our artistic director, really, uh, he was always keen to present the work Pagliacci, which is the second half of the program, which is the tears section of the program. And Pagliacci has a section in the in that piece where there is a play within a play, which is the Commedia dell'arte section, where um, the the various characters in the performance perform, and they have a sort of troupe that travels with them and often this is presented as a sort of circus um, act or something along those lines so we thought there's always been a, a marriage between 
the first half of the of the work not quite working with Pagliacci. So he approached Circus Oz to collaborate, and we have created um, in the first half the laughter, which is basically an extended version of the play within the play for an entire piece, focusing very much on the Circus Oz performers. Um, will there be opera? And as part of that performance, is it fully integrated or is yeah. it circus, then interval, then opera with a little bit of circus? No, very integrated across the two pieces. So um, we've worked very hard with our director, Emil Volk, who has an ex- extraordinary history, actually, in, in both opera and circus performance. And so Richard and Emil worked together very strongly to find pieces of music from um, madrigals and music antique period of work that have text that describe this play. Um, we also have pieces by Scarlatti, so that there is what we call the long chase, which is one of the characters that is one of the singers in Laughter, very much works alongside the circus performers they're trying desperately to get him onto a balcony to rescue his maiden in distress basically so yes very fully integrated uh, again the maiden on the balcony is a performer who we then shove in boxes and through holes and do all sorts of things to her really <laughs> now I'm intrigued uh, for many reasons one because as I said um, often collaboration is uh, be- is between very familiar and very similar art forms rather than outside one's own kind of art form or or personal practice. But also because opera often has the, I think people have the preconceptions that opera is quite a formal art form. Um, It has a a long history and there is a certain way that opera is done and opera is presented. Circus uh, is a relatively new art form. What we call new circus, contemporary circus, is really only 30 to 40 years old and still evolving and certainly has a a much more, shall we say, anarchic reputation. So fusing that kind of anarchy and formalism must have been quite challenging in some regards. It was challenging but it was also incredibly rewarding. And the only thing that I can add to that in in great knowledge, I've been lucky enough to work on the production from the beginning, from the initial meeting at Circus Oz, down in the old Port Melbourne buildings actually. But circus performance is in, in fact very steeped in tradition and very formal in its approach. Although what you see on stage doesn't necessarily have that appearance, the the structure behind the process of presenting that work is incredibly formal. So actually the marriage in that regard wasn't too difficult in that once we understood the requirements of getting the circus performers through the, the training, the rehearsals, the then the safety procedures and up to the same point where they could actually perform. There's this very similar format for that between the singers and the circus performers. We just we had a lot of meetings and we spoke a lot and we married the two art forms together, I think, quite successfully. And everybody now has a greater appreciation for what, from my perspective, what the circus performers do, and I know from them what the opera singers manage as well. I mean, because each art form requires an enormous amount of training and dedication, so I, there's that commonality between them already. I'm wondering if, as part of the development and rehearsal process, did any of the opera singers suddenly decide, actually, I, I would quite like to be hoisted up a rope and whirling over the head of the audience? Were they just like, I'll just stay with my feet in the ground and let the circus performers whirl overhead? No, they were quite 
They were quite fascinated. We have um, quite a few people that have now taken up juggling. Uh, we have one of our performers, James Clayton, who sings the role of Tonio in Pagliacci, is an extraordinary gentleman and he's been very much integrated with the circus performers and he's doing quite a lot of bits and pieces, tricks-wise, catching hats, juggling bits and pieces. Um, again, Michael Petricelli, who is the um, Beppe in Pagliacci and the Alacchino in the first half of Laughter, is again being thrown around he had to learn skills where he had to walk on people without hurting them so we had to teach we had to spend some time teaching him those kinds of skills um, and indeed the circus performers have a little section where they have a little vocal exploratory session I'll describe it as that Okay. <laughs> now this is not only a cross art form collaboration it's also a, got elements of international collaboration as well because you've got um, a Russian soprano and an Italian baritone yes. participating as well. Yes, yes. So Elvira Fatikova is our Russian soprano. She's quite extraordinary. Wonderful history of, of performance throughout um, Australia, actually. She first, I think, came to Australia in very early 2000. And Fabio Capitanucci is our baritone who's come to us um, from Milan and is doing these sets of performances and then heads off to Tokyo after this. Now, Victorian Opera as a company strikes me as a company that are very much aware of and keen on ensuring that opera remains a living, breathing, evolving art form rather than just uh, representing the same handful of classics over and over again in slightly different orders in seasons. What I've seen from Victorian Opera over recent years is a commitment to collaboration, to whether it and and a commitment to bringing in different and new art forms, whether it be circus in this instance or in the past 3D digital projections on stage, for example, to accompany uh, the work. Why does Victorian Opera want to continue to push forward rather than just resting on the laurels of what opera has done over the last several centuries? I think we recognise the fact that opera is has that sort of preconceived conception that it's a bit stuffy and old-fashioned. Um, I know Richard Mills doesn't feel that at all, although he is embedded in the beauty of music and the, and the clarity of music. But he loves the idea that new audiences come to join us and move on into the future, that we build an audience base of, of younger performers and singers and audience members, and that we investigate all the options about putting circus with with opera or a beautiful group of rock musicians with us so uh, our digital scenery is a three-year collaboration we have another work coming up shortly for saints in three acts at the malthouse and we've just started discussions with them at deakin university motion lab about the 2017 presentation too it's really important to for us to show the beauty of the pure classic opera and then move into these unusual collaborations Victorian Opera and Circus Oz uh, have collaborated on Laughter and Tears, which is happening at the Palais Theatre. Performances on the 13th, the 16th and the 18th of August at 7.30pm. Uh, tickets from $55. Uh, and if you're a, uh, a Voyage 30 member, that's for 30 and unders, then uh, it's $35. Uh, bookings, 136100 or online at ticketmaster.com.au. And you can find out more about the production and the company if you go to www.victorian.com.au.
victorianopera.com.au. But those dates again for Laughter and Tears, the 13th, the 16th and the 18th of August, a rare opportunity to see opera and circus combining on stage at the Palais Theatre in St Kilda. Should be great fun. Been chatting with Victorian Opera's executive producer, Libby Hill. Libby, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. My next guest is choreographer Sir Matthew Bourne, who uh, is going to be presenting a production of his work, Lord of the Flies, in Melbourne, at Art Centre Melbourne exclusively, uh, in April, from the 5th to the 9th of April. Matthew, welcome to Triple R. Great to be here, thank you. Now, I'm really intrigued by and about this production because yeah. not only is it an adaptation of perhaps one of the best-known kind of novels of the uh, the, the mid-20th century, an yeah. allegorical novel that looks at the, I guess, the the decay of society in miniature. That's right, um, yes. But, yeah. So it does that through dance, but it's also a project that I believe came about because um, the city of Glasgow wanted to find a way to work constructively with boys and young men in terms of addressing issues around masculinity and violence and, and uh, work and many other aspects of, as well. Yeah, that was one of the a- aspects. They came to us, actually, the, before any idea of Lord of the Flies was in place. They came to my company with a, with a project that they wanted to uh, achieve, which was to create a p- professional production that actually involved in an integral way, not in a token way, young local young people and, and particularly young men and boys who uh, maybe not, had not even considered being involved in such a thing or had never even been inside a theatre, you know. That, so it was, it was quite a task, you know, and they came to us with this idea. They wanted to use our sort of A-team of designers and compose. We had a new score written for it, um, a composer. And the... Um, the first thought that came into my head was Lord of the Flies. It just seemed like such an obvious choice of, uh, for young people to be involved in this piece in a, in a real way because it's very, um, it's essentially quite raw and it wouldn't work to have very technically trained young men in this piece. You know, it's not, a, it's, it's not the sort of piece you would make a ballet of. Um, so it's kind of the idea went with the piece very, very strongly and so it was the only idea I ever had uh, for this particular project and it's become um, something that we've repeated and 14 times actually in the UK different cities with different casts and the notion then of bringing it to Melbourne means that instead of it just being a visiting international production which people will enjoy it's going to be a yes. work that is actually growing out of Melbourne and out of Victoria because you'll be running yeah. workshops a, a statewide development program very much so we're, we're doing workshops in uh, in the spring uh, leading up to Christmas um, with sort of final auditions in January to, to find 24 young men and um, boys to be involved in this production um, and the workshops in themselves will be fun you know it's not it won't feel like an audition it will just be some games and things you know because we want we want guys to come in who just want to get excited about doing something a bit different you know want a bit of a challenge maybe some sporty guys who like getting hot and sweaty and get, having a good workout you know that kind of thing we're not looking for trained dancers um, if, if some of the guys are into dance 
dance, that's great, you know. But it's, it, it, and they're very welcome as well. Age group between about 10 and early 20s even, if it's something they've recently got into. Well, and early 20s is the age you started dancing as well. You came to dance yeah. quite late in life. That's why I don't want to rule those guys out, because I know what I was like at that point. I would have gone for this, and I wouldn't have wanted to be too old if I was 20 or something, you know, thinking I, I was past it. So I, I feel for those guys, because sometimes it's something you find, especially with, with uh, men and boys, you find it quite late, maybe. Um, so, yeah, there's room for those guys as well. Why do you think um, quite a few young men uh, come to dance late in life? Is it because they've had to fight against the conditioning that says kind of masculinity does not involve performance, does not involve dance? I think historically, yeah, that's true. I think things have got better. You know, there's more role models out there now and things on TV that sort of encourage young guys to get involved. But um, I certainly felt like that. I was always into putting on a show or something from a very early age, but I used to belong to a local sort of dance theatre group. But I used to not... I used to turn up after they'd done the the warm-up class, like the ballet class. I didn't think... I I didn't want to be seen in that, doing that. And this was, you know... 40 years ago now, something like that. Um, and it, But even then, you know, even I was into dance, I didn't want to be doing ballet and doing that sort of formal warm-up thing. So even then, I, was, I've, I felt that very strongly. Now, in terms of adapting Lord of the Flies, you've adapted and directed it, and you've brought another mm-hmm. choreographer on board. Yes. Uh, why not choreograph it yourself? Well, it's a different sort of strand of work for our company. Um, It's attached to my charity, which is called Reborn, and that's because it does involve young people, and um, that's part of the... uh the, the reason the project exists, as you know. Um, and Scott Ambler, who's my uh, associate uh, artistic director, has been working with me for 25 years. You know, we're almost like, we think the same. He, you know, he's, he's been part of the creation of what this company is all about. So it wasn't so far as so big a stretch to give Scott the responsibility for the choreography. And I just thought it was a nice thing to do. He's the same age as me. Um, and, you know, it was, a nice, it was a nice job to give him, and he's done a brilliant job. Now, tell us about the, I guess, the tone, the feel of the work, because uh, it's, from what you said earlier, it's not a ballet uh, no. so much as kind of vigorous contemporary dance. Yeah, it's a story told without words. That's what we do in everything we do. And uh, Lord of the Flies, I must say, was quite a challenge, because the, the estate... Uh, one of the things that they said we must do is follow the story and the characters as written, chapter by chapter, even though it was in a different medium. Because I think to begin with, I was thinking, we'll do a Lord of the Flies type piece, you know, sort of thing. And, th- and then when we talked to them, it was a bit more specific. And actually, that was good, because it made us really concentrate on the story and try to find ways of, of finding alternatives sometimes to, uh, to make things more visual. And one of the things we first started off with was to, to set it in a, an abandoned theatre rather than on a desert island, as in the book. So that the island sort of does appear eventually, but it's like an island of the imagination. It's made up with things that are on the stage and it becomes more... As the piece goes on, you, you feel you're there somehow. But to begin with, it's a, a group of boys locked into an abandoned theatre and they can't get out. And the savagery that occurs as uh, they, they turn on one another and, yeah. and turn inwards as well. Yeah, they do. And it's, it's something that the, the young boys that have been involved in the production sort of understand. They understand the idea of, you know, cliques and gangs forming, bullying... Um, there's many elements of leaders forming, you know, many elements of the story that they really get and they completely... Um, 
they don't need a lot of a lot of explanation for them. They understand it, you know, and they've um, of course they get them to read the book. <laughs> uh, but it's something they it's something they do get very quickly. Now, Melbourne audiences have seen uh, your work on several occasions previously, going back as far as 2007, when your um, renowned all-male production of Swan Lake first came to Melbourne, and yep. we've also seen your dance adaptation of Edward Scissorhands as well. Yes. Um, uh, when I mentioned that to a, a friend that Lord of the Flies was coming to Australia, um, the response was... Uh, um, do the ballerinas get upset that they're not being cast? You've got the, again another all male production. Well, it's not actually. It's, my, it's the first all male production I've ever done. Lord of the Flies. Swan Lake has got women in it. I know some people th- think they're men in drag, but they're actually not. <laughs> they are real women. Um, and so it's the first time it's been done. And, and I, I guess it, if you only know those pieces, you think that. I have got a reputation for working with, with men, I guess, although lots of pieces I've done. Um, well, Edward Scissorhands is not a male-only show. No, no, of course. And many of the works you've choreographed for, kind of, or re-choreographed perhaps, for some of the, the great classic musicals as well. Yes. A, a broadcast. Absolutely. And it, but what it does have, it does have that same feel of Swan Lake. But when you get a group of young men together, the, the atmosphere and the, uh, is very different. Um, and there's a sort of brotherhood feeling kind of forms um, and a kind of looking out for each other uh, and that's very important to this project because the professional dancers in it there are eight versus 24 newcomers that come in uh, they, they become like mentors to these young people and inspiration hopefully some people they can look up to and think well I'd like to do that I'd like to be like that one of the things that intrigues me also about the production of Lord of the Flies is that we're going to be having professional dancers from the UK, professional dancers from Australia, That's right. and the, the, the young people, uh, the boys and young men who are being found through this statewide uh, kind of process. So it's a real kind of cross-cultural collaboration as well as a collaboration between amateurs and professionals. Yes, and it should have a flavour of the state. It should have a flavour of Melbourne and Victoria in it, actually, because... Um, because of that involvement of all those people and that's something that we'll discover as we do it because we've done it in many cities throughout the UK and you try and um, with each production there are elements of it that are created anew each time so um, which which we thought was an important aspect of the piece that there was a there was creativity involved rather than just learn this and learn this you know Um, so that flavour should be there it should be something that Melbourne can be proud of you know that it's 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 about this group of people. So how does that flavour differ from city to city? So how did the, I know, the Cardiff production uh, yeah. differ from Bradford, for example? Well, for example, you know, Bradford, the, 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 it's a very urban setting in, uh, around Bradford and you, you get the kind of guys who are quite, need a lot of control in a way. You know, you need to sort of calm them down. There's a lot of, they're very vocal, they're very um, full of energy, uh, whereas in Cardiff, maybe they were a little bit more. It was hard to get that um, savagery out of them. You know, you had to really work. They were a bit more polite. You know, <laughs> so it's sort of, and it varied from place to place. The Scottish kids were were great, and then you you'd get actually even in in Scotland it was different. Up in Aberdeen, they were very different to how they were in Glasgow, for example. You know, so you had to sort of gauge them each time and and see what they needed to be able to achieve doing this piece and sometimes it was easier than other times. And I imagine the Melbourne production of Lord of the Flies uh, will face 
perhaps all of those differences because you're working with an entire state rather than just yeah. one city, for example. Well, that, the hope is that we get a, a mixture of, of lads from all over the place, you know, sort of an, an, a, a great mix as well, an ethnic mix and a, um, a diverse cast. So hopefully they'll make connections as well um, that will that turn into great friendships and uh, that they wouldn't have made otherwise. And perhaps also lead to some great careers as well. Well, that started to happen with the original productions. So a lot of the boys are in training now. Um, it's not what the pro- it's not what it's about. It's not about finding the best the great dancers. dancers of the future. But some of them have been inspired enough to carry on into dance and are, are now in, in training. Lord of the Flies is going to be an Australian premiere exclusive to Melbourne uh, at Art Centre Melbourne in the State Theatre from the 5th to the 9th of April 2017. But the development process is as much a part of the show as the performances itself. So when does that begin? And for people listening who have got boys or or teenagers or early 20-something young men in in the household, how do they get involved? Well, Art Centre Melbourne's website has a link to anyone who wants, feels they would like to get involved or wants to suggest someone that they would like to get involved um, and they will then be contacted about the workshops which are happening around October, November, December time um, and they can come along and have some fun and try out for it. Fantastic. So uh, just jump online, go to artcentermelbourne.com.au, look for the link so you can find out all the information about Lord of the Flies, whether you want to book tickets to see it or whether you want uh, a member of the family or a friend to get involved in the rehearsal and development process. It sounds like it's going to be a fascinating work. The reviews from the UK of the production uh, have been outstanding and glowing and uh, I'm sure the, uh, that Melbourne will give it a similar response. So Matthew Bourne, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.